In Jesus' name we pray. How y'all? Good. Tonight's text is powerful. It's inspiring. It's, it's instructive. We're going to cover chapter 22 and the first eight verses of chapter 23 tonight. There were some uh, very difficult decisions to make regarding uh, exactly what to cover in these enigmatic verses. Ironically, we have somewhat of a reputation for taking a peculiar but biblically supported position on various controversial topics. So you can imagine the field day that we had with this particular selection of verses. A few of the topics that are covered in these chapters. First, a blood curse on Jehoiachin and his descendants. Is anybody familiar with that? No. Second, the differing inspired genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Anybody ever run into the differences in those genealogies? Yeah. And yet they're both inspired. Third, the implications of Numbers 27, 1 through 11, and the daughters of Zeholophat. In the past, we've taught on that and called it the Zeholophad anomaly. Fourth, there's numerous textual and manuscript differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, and their chronological arrangements are dramatically different in certain chapters. Fifth, Haggai 2.23 and the signet ring that is placed on Zerubbabel's finger. It's a major issue. As fun as it would be for us to indulge in that particular field of study, it seemed relatively clear to us that it would detract from the overall perspective that God is emphasizing to this church, the days of Jeremiah. Amen. That's what we think the Holy Spirit wants to convey. At best, a very small number of you in this room, familiar with those subjects, would be angered that your previously held positions are wrong. And at worst, the rest of you in this room would be lost for the majority of a two-hour Bible study. So we thought it might work best to simply say, no matter how you view the bloodline curse or the differences in the genealogies, there are sound scriptural answers that arrive at the same conclusion, even though they may get there in different ways. Namely, that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David, and the scripture never contradicts this truth. Amen. Tonight you're going to hear that, you're going to hear us approach it. We're simply not going to take the time to work through every possible variant argument, because in my home, after dinner, many Thursday nights I've done it with you, and most of the time it hasn't resulted in the most spiritual of fruit that has been produced. So we're going to stick to what the Lord is showing us tonight and heed the words of Paul to Timothy and not get into endless quarrels over genealogies. Is that fair enough? So, we've come to a place where Jennifer is going to read to us Jeremiah 22, all of the chapter, and then through the first eight verses of chapter 23. This is what the Lord says. 
Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, your, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of, of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a desert, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up for your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by the city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. Do not weep for the dead, king, or mourn his loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return nor see his native land again. For this is what the Lord says about Shalom, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king Judah, but is gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did it you not did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set on a dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Let your voice be heard in Bashan. Cry out from your, cry out from Abarim, for all your allies are crushed. I warned you when you left, felt secure, but you said, I will not listen. This, this has been your ways from your youth. You have not obeyed me. The wind will drive all your shepherds away, and your allies will go into exile. Then you will be ashamed and disgraced because of all your wickedness. You who live in Lebanon, who are nestled in cedar buildings, how you will groan when pains come upon you, pain like that of a woman in labor. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. 
I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country, where neither of you was born, and there you will both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiachin, a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying the scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, sells to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not destroyed, um, have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to, the rim, to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any, will any be missing, declares the Lord. In the days that are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David's righteous, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them. Oh, then they will live in their own land. Amen. Well, there are certainly some gems tucked away for us in this chapter tonight. And as many of you know, the best way to mine for gems is to get straight into the tunnel and go to work. <laughs> so, Linton, would you pick up in verse 1? This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah. For time's sake, we can't cover the full aspects of Jeremiah's ministry up to this point. But we have been doing this the previous chapters that we've been studying. Although some of the texts are not chronologically arranged, meaning the chapters of Jeremiah are not in time order, it is important to understand that the Spirit ensured that the progression thematically emphasizes something. We're going thematically through these chapters. Jeremiah is now at the palace of the king. Now, if you remember in Jeremiah 11, 18 through 19, Jeremiah was dealing with a plot to kill him. He said he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Jeremiah 11.21 reveals that this was in Anathoth, his hometown. So he starts in his hometown where there's great tribulation and his own countrymen want to kill him. In Jeremiah 12.5-6 it says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, meaning his hometown, how can you compete with horses? 
referring to Jerusalem. If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. It's very clear from this passage in Jeremiah 12, the men on foot, who are we referring to? We just heard it. The men of Anathoth, the men from Jeremiah's hometown. And the horses are the men, the priesthood, the people that he would interact with in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Very good. You guys are getting it. If you go further on in Jeremiah 19, in verse 3, we have Jeremiah addressing the people of Jerusalem. You see, he's made it from Anathoth, and he has journeyed, and he is beginning to learn, to be tested, and approved with the horsemen in Jerusalem. This is encouraging to all of us. That Jeremiah is walking through this process, and each stage the Lord is helping him to be both tested and approved in the call. And it has landed him in Jeremiah 19, verse 3, smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem. If you continue to read in Jeremiah 19 and verse 14, Jeremiah has progressed not just to the city of Jerusalem, but into the very courts of the Lord's temple. Wow. And tonight, somebody say tonight. Tonight. We see his ministry has progressed to the very palace of the king of Israel. Oh, come on. There are abundant parallels to the ministry of Jesus that began in the north of Israel, up there, you know, by Galilee, and progressed all the way down south to Jerusalem. And then we see Jesus in the temple doing ministry. And you know what? Jesus even culminated in some trials before King Herod and some Roman rulers. Can you guys see the progression in the Messiah's life just like Jeremiah? Jesus indicated that our lives, they might follow a similar progression as Jeremiah and as his life. Luke 21 and verse 12 says, But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. Tonight, we want to remind you that what you are doing at home, the footman issues in your life right now. These are the issues that determine whether or not you will be considered worthy to represent him in the horseman issues. We encourage you to take the title deed to your hometown in faith. Hebrews 11 kind of style we're talking about. Taking that title deed talked about in Hebrews 11.1. So that you can develop into men that run with horses. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 46. I will speak of your statutes before kings. And will not be put to shame. Is there anybody in here who wants that? Yes. Yes. Anybody in here who wants to represent him in the best possible way? Yes. Yes. It starts with what we do at home. Amen. It starts with how you manage your own family. Come on. That's the requirement for all ministry. If you do not progress in footmen issues, you are not worthy to handle horsemen issues. Come on. Too long the church has just stood, stood back and said, well, we're all sinners. We're unworthy anyway. No, Jeremiah showed himself 
worthy yeah. for the call of God on the source. Many are called, very few are chosen to complete the task because they don't consider it worthwhile to do. Before we pick up in verse 2, did you notice what direction he went to get to the king's palace? That's unusual in the scripture. Usually if you're approaching Jerusalem, you're going upward. If you're approaching the highest office in Jerusalem, you're going upward. In this case, he's going down. What do you think that hints at? The low place that these kings are at in their lives, in their history. Tonight is a low point in Israel's history. We don't want you to be in low points. We want you to get your footmen issues right so that you can get your horsemen issues right. We believe that to reach that map right there, it starts by what you do in your home. As we stand here tonight, Jerusalem is being bombarded with rockets. Over the last few days, these are real serious times. And what you do in your own home right now really matters. That in mind, let's pick up in verse 2 and read through 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. As we mentioned earlier, Jerusalem is being attacked right now. Obviously, the enemy has not forgotten Jerusalem. Right. In our text here tonight, verses 2 through 4, a particular generation of David's descendants are being addressed for their sinful condition. Now, I want to remind you of the Davidic covenant and how it stands. Yes. As Paul wrote, speaking to churches that knew the word, it's no trouble at all for me to remind you of these things again. Why? Because we need them. Because it must grow from an intellectual understanding to a heartfelt conviction. Cody, would you get Luke 1, 31 through 33? And I'm going to hand out another, somebody in the room who wants to take it. Hayes in the back. Revelation 5, 3 through 5. Then I have a psalm. Who wants it? Chris Rizora. Get Psalm 122 and read 3 through 9 for me. Cody, you can pick up with Luke 1 whenever you're ready. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Oh, come on, read it one more time for me. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord... God will give him the throne of his father David. Come on. Get 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Yes. His kingdom will never end. Yes. Amen. Saints, we've heard this scripture too many times. We tend to get desensitized to it. Everything that we are reading tonight is true. It is real. They are being faced with their own sinful condition, but God has already promised that something would take place. Yeah. Jesus, the very real and living son of David, was promised David's throne. 
Nothing that you encounter in news events today or that you read about that will happen in the scripture will ever change that reality. That reality must become a conviction in us. Hear it in Revelation 5. I forget, so you have to help me. Is the book of Revelation written before or after Jeremiah? Again, struggling. I'm, <laughs> I'm just getting old, I guess. The book of Luke, was it written before or after Jeremiah? After. You mean to tell me that in a chapter that seems to indicate that there would be no more descendants from a particular Judean king of the line of David, that Jesus was promised to rule on the throne of David and that Revelation presents him as uh, of the lion of tribe of Judah and will reign on the throne of David, the root of, of David has triumphed, then no matter how you understand Jeremiah, Jesus is the answer to that. It won't help me sell a Bible difficulties book, and it, it may not be the way that you want to spend a Thursday evening at my house, but it is the simple, most straightforward answer, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus is the root of David, according to Revelation 5, and according to Luke 1. And he has triumph. Triumph. Yeah. One of the sad commentaries on American Christianity is we pick up at a point in the story where we literally only care about, well, how do I avoid hell? This story is so much better than that. Come on. Understanding the trials and tribulations that the line of David has gone through just to produce the Messiah is a part of the story that you have now been grafted into. The Davidic covenant, it is still intact. And the biblical account is consistent on this fact from its inception all the way through its completion. And yet right now, we do not have in Jerusalem a throne of David with Jesus sitting on it. Or David sitting on it, if that's your preferred interpretation. <laughs> Which means that there is still work to be done. Yeah. Still things that we should be praying about. Amen. Things that still must happen. We're not going to take the time to go back through the election of Israel as a whole versus a particular generation or two that God divorces. But the Bible is consistent in the fact that there still must be a Davidic throne. There still must be a son of David ruling the world from Jerusalem. Every generation, it has choices to make. Our generation has, it occurs to me as we're going through Jeremiah that Jeremiah is addressing a nation in decline, a nation under the judgment of God. And when I look around, I see a nation in decline, not yeah. Israel, us. Yeah. I see a generation that is under the judgment of God. We have certain choices that we have to make. Every generation is regarded is, is, has to regard these choices and consider prayerfully what to do. Did you know that as a believer, you're instructed to pray for Jerusalem and for the house of David? Yeah. How pressing has that been on your mind this week? Perhaps after we read Psalm 122, verses 3 through 9, 
it will refresh an obligation because you don't just get to be a part of Israel. You don't just get to be under the rulership of Messiah. It also comes with sharing the concerns of Messiah, the concerns of the Bible, the concerns of the people that produce salvation for the world. Who had uh, Psalm 122? Go ahead, Chris. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statutes given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Okay, pause there real quick. Did you catch in verse 4? They're to go up to the place, the Jer to Jerusalem, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. It is a statute. It's a decree that will never end. Also, there are thrones, the thrones of the house of David. That is a statute in God's mind that will never change at any point in time. Now, in your regards to the statute, you who are in Christ, are you in Christ? Yes. Are you in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? Yes. Well, then this is your instruction. This is how you are to follow in what Jesus cares about in verse 6. Yeah. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. For the sake of my brothers and friends. I want to tell you that those brothers and friends are our Jewish brothers and friends who are still waiting for the throne of David. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will say, peace be within you. At any point in time, any generation, whether you see a throne or not, you are instructed in faith to believe what the Bible already said will happen. That there will be a throne in Jerusalem again, and that Jesus, the son of David, will sit on it. This is your goal. This is what you're to aim at when you're praying for that to happen. You're praying in faith, God, make your plan real on earth. Lord, cause it to happen. Cause me to help it happen. That is to be our goal in faith. So let's pick up in verse 5, and we're going to read all the way to verse 7. Hey, as we pick up in 5, it's worth noting with what Justin just said. An iron dome will never bring about peace. Certainly no act from the UN will ever bring about peace. There is one thing that will bring lasting peace, and that is the return of the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David. So if you want peace and security in Israel, it is come Lord Jesus and come soon. And we tangibly get our hands and feet moving towards that end as we pray. What that looks like is praying for the Jewish people to repent and accept Messiah. We know that for peace to come, there has to be a destruction, and Messiah has to come. So that prayer looks like, Lord, bring your shalom in Jerusalem that they would repent and accept Messiah. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord said about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a desert. Like towns not inhabited, I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar veins and throw them into the fire. Reading these verses at first glance, it was a little bit difficult to decipher what was actually going on. 
But as we read and as we dug, I think we found a key to be able to discern what is actually going on in this passage and what the Lord is trying to aim at through Jeremiah. If you read, look at verse 6 with me for a moment. You see where it says, Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a desert, like towns not inhabited. Initially, that looks like Gilead in Lebanon is a positive thing. Like, he's making a contrast between something that's positive, and then he's saying, I'm going to make you like a desert, juxtaposed to one another. Until you start digging a little bit, and you find out that the word though is not actually in the text. It's not there. It's not there in the original. It's not there in the NASB, the ESV, the, the YLT, you name it. You go to translation, and it's just not there. So this might, just might, dramatically change the way that we read these verses. Let's do it again without that word in there and see if it might illuminate something to us. Verse 6. For this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. I will surely make you like a desert, like towns not inhabited. And he goes on, I will send destroyers against you. Now, what further adds to this kind of reading of the text is that Gilead housed uh, a people, housed the people of Bashan, the, the Rephaim that we've been studying about in series like Star Wars. Gilead was the home for these type of creatures. They were, they were, it was home of former rulers over the land, like Og, the Rephite. Gilead and Lebanon may be hinting at that historical fact throughout this narrative tonight. So instead of juxtaposed to each other, you might read this passage like, just like Gilead, just like Lebanon, just like these places that were leveled before me. Just like the places that I went through and destroyed all of the people of the land, I will surely make you, Israel, like a desert, like towns not inhabited. As in a, a statement that compares them to each other. Maybe, just maybe, this statement might be roughly analogous to another statement in the word that we find. Like, you are like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. Do you remember when the word says that? You are like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. You are like Gilead and Lebanon to me. I will do to you what I did to my enemies in the past. Isn't it a fact in the law over and over and over that there were powerful Canaanite nations in the land? Yeah. Yeah. That there were giants in those nations? There were men that no one else could defeat, but God himself caused his people to defeat them and uproot them? Yeah. Imagine that a prophet is in front of you and he's saying, you are to me, Gilead. You're, you're just like Og of Bashan. You think I can't uproot you? You belong to me. That is more the context with which we have discovered this chapter this evening. And I want you to notice that it stays consistent throughout the entire chapter. The other reading does not. Brother Lynch, why don't you get verse 8 and 9 for me? People from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, 
Deuteronomy 4 said that the nation should be asking. Yeah. Hey, I want you to consider what was just said here. Why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? Why would they ask that? Because they all know this was established by supernatural power. Yeah. It had become great because God's law dwelt there. And the answer will be because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord. Hey, I'm going to hand out Isaiah 2, 2 through 3 to Nick Rosales. Nick, read it loud and proud for me. Nothing monotone like you've been through an Acts class. And let us hear it. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in come his path. The law will go The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is their destiny. Yeah. This is what they were called to. That the word of God would dwell in them so richly that foreign nations were coming to learn about the Almighty. Yeah. That we might know his ways. That we might be taught. Man, it is overwhelming when you see someone that is called of God and yet walking in a pigsty. Yeah. This is the yeah. overall state of an entire generation. But saints, we also have hope in this. Isaiah prophesied this long before Jeremiah. They don't contradict each other. One does not abrogate the next. This is still Israel's destiny, no matter what we see in the present generation in Jeremiah's day or in ours. God will bring this about, and the path will be through repentance and restoration. This is in each Israel's future, and we have the opportunity to participate in it. Can we take a second and make a personal application? Yes. Who in here has an amazing call of God on their life? Well, you're going to have to learn to speak then. Who in here has an amazing call? Oh, that's kind of what... That call of God, it came from God, and it will happen. But it will not happen for you if you disobey God. It will happen. You will not be a part of it. That's the warning here. You can't get any more secure than the promises given to the house of David. And yet they're not secure for the individual that doesn't obey. They will happen just not through you. Who wants to obey? I do. Yeah, I want the call of God on my life. I do not want to forfeit it. This is not an older Testament concept. This is throughout the Bible. Judas was told, along with the other 12, you who have stood by me in my troubles, I will confer upon you a kingdom just as my father has conferred one upon Ooh. me. Those 12 were told, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Can I tell you there will be 12 thrones, there will be 12 tribes, and... Twelve men will sit on those thrones, but Judas is not one of them. He was replaced. When God says something, it will happen. But you get to choose whether or not you're a part of what God says will happen. That part is up to you. Yeah. Who wants to make their calling and election sure? I do. I do. Let's pick up in verse 10. Do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return, nor see his native land again. Mm -hmm. 
Tonight's text was riddled with difficulties in interpretation. I want to point out to you that king, in verse 10, is not in the text, and, and you may consider it inappropriate. If you read it as, do not weep for the dead or mourn his loss, rather weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return nor see his native land again. We have lots of pronouns in, in this verse. And it's difficult to know which pronoun has the same antecedent and which is different. Rather than take you through that technical process, I just want to suggest to you that the admonition may have more to do with not weeping for those who die in the coming siege because they have the opportunity to agree with God and his judgments. And instead, the one who is in real trouble in this passage is the king who is rebellious and will not agree with the judgments of God. And so he's going to be humbled through a captivity. That would be the context that I read this in. To give you an idea of what that might look like in our lives, who wants to read a passage? I do. Just trying to pick a new voice in the room. Somebody from the left side. There we go, JJ. Give us Revelation 14, 12 through 13. And remember that the book of Revelation contains the admonition to the saints. Those who are destined to go into captivity, into captivity they'll go. Yeah. Those who are destined to die by the sword, by the sword they'll die. And you can glorify God by agreeing with him. And that might be your calling. We won't weep over you. Not, not if it's a part of God's plan. We'll weep over the man who will not agree with God's judgments yeah. and is not working according to the plan. Yeah. Okay. Let's hit Revelation. 14 verses 12 through 13. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Keep going. See, we are in a nation that is destined to undergo the judgment of God. If you don't believe that, watch the news. If you still don't believe it, go pray. Something's wrong with you. <laughs> Many of us may die in that scenario. But nobody should weep over us. Mm -hmm. Our deeds will follow us into eternity. Right. The weeping should be for those who will not repent. In fact, Jesus made a very similar statement to this when he was about to be executed in the will of God. Who would like to read that? Spence, get Luke 23, verses 28 and 29. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. You see, Jesus, Jesus bore the wrath of God when he was on the cross. Jesus had all of the sin placed on him, and he was in agreement with it. He didn't offer any quarrel. He didn't try to say, this is not my fault. He went with the judgment of God and agreed with it, the justice of God, and agreed with it. And yet they're weeping for him. Isn't that kind of ironic? It was his choice to agree with yeah. the justice of God and the wrath of God. He willingly did it, and yet they're weeping for him. And then he turns it around on them. Don't weep for me. Weep for those who will be a part of this judgment and will not repent. That will not accept the judgment of God and will die then. 
Look, before we read verse 11, I can I just give you some historical truths? In our time, you make a decision to follow Christ. And whether you do follow Christ or not, everybody says you're saved. They don't know what you're saved from. They don't know what you're saved to, but, but you're saved. Just 150 years ago, men didn't teach salvation that way. They actually taught things like, let's just say Jonathan Edwards. The first step in coming to the Lord is being aware that there is a good God and a desire to please him is birthed in your heart. Anybody ever have that? Yes. The second step, according to Edwards, was when you try to be pleasing to that God and fail miserably and cannot do it. The third step, he said, is when you realize that there is a just God who is going to burn all of his enemies, and it's right that he would burn you. The fourth one is that you would then cry out to him and ask for help, but you do not yet receive it and agree with God that you deserve eternal punishment. The fifth one, according to Edwards, the first great awakening in this country, is when something mystical happens in your heart, and for the very first time in your life, you're able to do things that are pleasing to him. I wonder what would happen if we approach salvation more like that. See, it's not sad when people die agreeing with God and trying to please him. It's sad when men spend their entire lives running from the judgment of God and saying that they're pleasing to him. Why don't we pick up in verse 11? We have some slides for you because this chapter gets pretty complicated pretty quick. Well, this is what the Lord said about Shalom, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. Man, this is about to get really, really fun. So, everybody, it's time. If you haven't, if you kind of been in and out a little bit, man, it's time to really hone in. Because this chapter, as Pastor said, it's about to get really complicated. Yeah. And this is step one of the complication, and we really want you guys to get this. So, in verse 11, all right, we have the Lord speaking something about Shalom, son of Josiah, the man who succeeded his father as king of Judah. Shalom. Most scholars by far... Their consensus is that Shalom here is a king by the name of Jehoahaz, who happens to be a direct son of Josiah. This is important, and we're putting up a chart now. There it is. Do you guys remember this chart? Yeah. 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 Thank you. It's been a few months, to say the least, but this is pretty amazing here. I want you to direct your attention to the right side of the screen. So... Jehoahaz is there. If you look at the top left, you've got Josiah, and from Josiah and Zebida, oh, I'm sorry, Josiah and Hamutal, you go all the way to the right side of the screen, and you get King Jehoahaz. This is the first king that's being addressed in this chapter of Jeremiah 22. It's the first king in our text tonight. Now, follow the green arrow all the way across the screen, And you get to a king by the name of Jehoiakim. He is going to be the second king in our text tonight. And we will very quickly get to some passages that deal directly with him. After this second king.
king, I want you to look down at Jehoiachin in the bottom left of your screen. He is going to be the third king in our text tonight. We're just laying some groundwork for what we're about to dive into. After Jehoiachin is the last king of Judah before captivity. Follow that arrow up into the right, straight to King Zedekiah. This reminds me of that old country song, I Am My Own Grandpa, <laughs> which is why we took the time to put this on a chart for you and put the arrows for you and help you follow the text tonight, and we will keep referring back to it to help you. Yeah, we're going to keep putting this on the screen. Uh, one insight, insightful thing, just to keep in mind as we go through these kings and how the Lord addresses each one through chapter 22, hint, hint, we're going to go from Jehoiakim or Jehoahaz to Jehoiakim. <coughs> then we're going to go from Jehoiakim, and you look down, and you see that Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim. Yeah. Now, if that wasn't as complicated enough for you, Jehoiachin, the, the guy that succeeds him, that comes after him, is Zedekiah, who is actually Jehoiachin's uncle and the brother of Jehoiakim. So the last king is actually the uncle of the second-to-last king. You guys followed? Okay. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons we draft this for you is when we did Chronicles with you, First and Second Chronicles, the, the, the last chapter, chapter 36, follows the same order. And when, Chron when Jeremiah is being written and organized, it follows the same order as Chronicles did. Which is very nice because just last week we were addressing Zedekiah. And now this week we're addressing Jehoiahaz. Yeah. And friends, that can get a little confusing. Yeah. So we're trying to help you. Amen. Okay, so we're going to leave this chart up here. And I want you to listen to First Chronicles chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And this is going to bring clarity to what you're looking at here on the screen. It says, the sons of Josiah. Great. Top left, King Josiah, got it. His sons, Johanan the firstborn. Do you see him in the smack dab in the middle of the screen there? Okay, he was the firstborn. Jehoiakim, the second son. Do you see him on the left side? Okay, great, we're tracking. Then we have Zedekiah the third. Do you see him toward the right side, middle of the screen? All right. And then we have Shalom the fourth which is how we can say that Jehoahaz is equal to Shalom. We're looking at, at this passage in 1 Chronicles 3, and it's clear he had four sons. Shalom equals Jehoahaz. I just want to be really clear. You could not give us enough praise or appreciation for striping this out for you. So don't try. It's okay. We, we are really happy with ourselves. <laughs> Verse 16 goes on to say, the successors of Jehoiakim. So we, we went from verse 15 talking about the sons of Josiah to verse 16, and we switched. We're not talking about the sons of Jehoiakim. We're talking about the successors to the throne. Who was the king after Jehoiakim? Which, after Jehoiakim, the first one happened to be his son, Jehoiachin. Great. But after Jehoiachin, his son, it says, and Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah before captivity. 
Judah is going to take us through 2 Kings chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 30, and we're going to talk about how Jehoahaz's life plays out in a snippet in 2 Kings. We'll continue to remind you of their order of operations, so to speak, but what you need to recognize is from Josiah's death to the end of captivity, it's all a bad batch. Yeah. You may not know which brother it is, but they participate in the same idolatry just to an increasing measure, and that tenor will become immediately apparent. So Josiah, a good king, everybody that comes after him, pretty bad. Normally you go up to Jerusalem and would go up <laughs> further to the palace, yeah. but after Josiah, we're going down to the king's palace. Somebody say bad, bad, batch, batch. Remember that. Brother Ben, would you get 2 Kings 23, 30-34 for me? It says this, Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem <clears throat> and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. All right, so we're going to pause there. Notice nobody consulted the priest. It doesn't say the Lord chose him. It just says the populace voted and they got what they uh, wanted. Such an interesting day in time. Wow. They probably sent out stimulus checks. Oh. <laughs> Maybe some Venezuelan software. Hey, get 31. <laughs> Jehoaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Uh -oh. His mother's name was Hamatol. Daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamas, so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Jael, son of Josiah, king, in place of his father Josiah. And changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoaz and carried him off to Egypt, and there he died. Ninety days. That's the extent of his reign. And then the Lord used Necho to come and remove him. Now, everything that you hear Jeremiah prophesying to Jehoaz is during those ninety days. So just put that into perspective. It's not over decades. It's not over a long time frame. This is where he's heading, and within 90 days, he's going to be replaced, and Israel is going to be made into a vassal state. By the way, if you have a really terrible king, and you would like the people to view him differently, then apparently you just change his name. It's something like a man being in Congress for 47 years and never having done anything, and you just present him as something entirely new in a presidential election. Oh, wow. Hey, what's verse 12? <laughs> he will die in the, in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Did you see that the text bears out that he did die in a foreign land? Yeah. Okay, keep going. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for the labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it and panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did not, he did what was righteous. 
on shedding innocent blood and, and on oppression and extortion. Wow. See, Josiah did well. His son, Shalom, or Jehoahaz, he did not. They didn't live the same way. I mean, he's his son, but he doesn't act like him. That's a big problem. You remember what we were telling you about getting your home issues right? I don't care how righteous you are. If you raise hellions, you've contributed hell to the world. God wants us to get these issues right. Do you notice the digs, the rhetorical questions at do material blessings make you a king? Mm -hmm. Has there ever been a generation that needed to hear that more than us? Come on. Look, the size of your house, the amount of your blessings, you can put I tithe on your Jaguar if you want. But material blessings don't make you a king in God's eyes. Righteousness does. And a dynasty is based on righteousness through generations, not what you can hand down to your children. You can get really excited if you want to about the size of bank account you're going to give your children. But if you mildly suck and your children suck greatly, then all you've done is fund wickedness into the future. You know what I I think a righteous father's legacy is for his children? His righteous life. That's, That's what's supposed to happen. Look, are you concerned with the things the Lord is concerned with tonight? Or are you building your own kingdom? Because we're warned by these men's lives. And I wish Josiah had been a little more concerned with raising Jehoahaz. And I wish Jehoahaz had been a lot more concerned with imitating the righteous things he saw in his father's life as opposed to living off of the blessings of his father. Yeah, it's a man reigned for years, and God blessed him a lot. His son, his son reigns 90 days, and he drives the nation in a hole. That ought to tell you something about your views of inheritance for your children. Okay, that, that really ought to tell you a lot. It's, it's not like we don't have stories about this in the Bible. It's not like the Proverbs don't tell us that an inheritance gained all at once in the end will not be a blessing. And yet we keep working at this generation after generation. Let me just say it's not very wise. Maybe we should focus on investing in what is righteous. Doesn't that make more sense? Yes. yes. I think maybe just to put it into perspective, I'd like Assad to read Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Now pause right there. That is a huge statement in the Psalms, isn't it? Most of us don't really think about that. Unless the Lord builds the house. This is not waiting on the Lord to build the house. This is not sitting by while the Lord does it for you. This is the Lord showing you how to build the house. This is your response to the Lord's leading and how to build your house. This is your response to the Lord's word and how to build your house. So how important is it to know what he's saying through his word and through his spirit of prophecy about your house? That is how God builds your house through you. But keep going. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. This is what happens when you don't build according to the Lord's word. 
You're waking up in vain, rising early, staying up late, never being satisfied with the food that you are given. Anybody in here ever feel like your life consists of going to work, going home, going to bed, and then getting up and going to work again? Well, then you're building with the wrong thing. Keep going, verse 3. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. See, the psalmist presents sons as a weapon that the father has. Uh, weapons that the parents have, not assets that just happen to spring up in your household. These are not just things that exist there and you're just growing up along with them. They are to be weapons that you use to launch out into the kingdom of the world to advance the kingdom of God. Now, with that in mind, look at what's happening here in this lineage of Josiah. Again, you have a righteous king, Josiah and Zebedee. And a lot goes on, but you see how many of these brothers and how many of the children that they have, they advanced wickedness on the earth. So is it safe to say that Josiah really fulfilled God's will in his life? Not really. No, even though he was an amazing king. Like Eric said earlier, he literally helped in spreading hell to the rest of the earth. Our now, narrative is about to switch. The reason that is on the screen right now is because the text is about to give you a hint that while he's standing in the king's palace addressing the king, we're getting more than one king that is being addressed. So this is a compilation over time. So we're now about to hear the address to Jehoiakim, the next king after Shalom. Now, in the next verse, in verse 18, which we are about to read, we're going to read, and it's going to start in the English translation with therefore. But that could be read as being said afterward. So instead of therefore, replace it with the word afterward. Or it may be saying, since Jehoahaz was miserable and Jehoiakim is miserable, therefore I have addressed him as well. God's grouping them into the same batch. So let's pick up in verse 18 and read that. Therefore, or afterward, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. All right, so which king are we switching to right now? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, the next king in line of the throne. Keep reading for us, Quintel. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother. Alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Man, this... This passage seems like we're going from bad to worse, guys. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting worse as we progress through these kings. Now, raise your hand tonight if you have access to a King James Version. Yeah. Wow. Megan, I'm so glad that you raised Megan. your hand. Can you please read verse 19 loud and proud in the King James Version for us? And we need to draw your attention to this while she's turning there. Very rarely do we ever favor the King James Version. (laughs) But tonight, tonight, in this singular verse, we think no Bible puts it better. (laughs) Amen. Don't be shy, Megan, loud and proud. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. 
a little louder. You did a good job, Megan. Thank you. Give her a hand. Thank you. Now that we've had a little bit of comic relief from the King James Version, which we like to do from time to time, let's review the political situation around these kings with a slide from the beginning of our study in Jeremiah. You might recognize this slide. This was something that we went over at the very beginning when we first introduced the book together. But I imagine that you, like me and like us, we might have forgot a little bit of these details as we've gone through these weeks. So let's go through this together. This is entitled The Political Background of the time period, speaking about Jeremiah. So from the year 639, moving forward, we have King Josiah. And during King Josiah's reign, Jeremiah begins prophesying in the 13th year of his reign. Shortly after that, we have the fall of Nineveh, and the Assyrians are weakened by Babylon. And then three years later, we have the death of Josiah at Megiddo, and we have, it's by the hands of Pharaoh Necho. Now, in that same year, we have a transition between King Josiah, who is now dead, to his son Jehoahaz, who we just got finished speaking about. Now, how long was his reign again? It was three months. It was about 90 days, and then Necho came and dragged him off to Egypt. So in that same year, we had Jehoiakim take the throne. He reigned all the way up until 597, and there were a few crucial things that happened during Jehoiakim's reign. And this is one of the main reasons why we wanted to go over this tonight, because we're studying about Jehoiakim right now. But we wanted to open your guys' eyes a little bit and refresh you about what is happening all around Israel during this time. You have the Battle of Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho. This is one of the most important battles in history because there is a shift in global power between Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar. It really solidifies him as the reigning king of the known world at the time. We have the Assyrians also being conquered by Babylon, which only serves to strengthen the Babylonian kingdom of the day. Then we have the first siege of Jerusalem during this same time that we are in this passage. It happens on Nebuchadnezzar's return from defeating Assyria. During this same time, Daniel is exiled. If you read Daniel chapter 1, the first two verses, you find out, wow, during King Jehoiakim's time, this is when Daniel is exiled. And in 597, you have the second siege of Jerusalem. During this time, you have Ezekiel exiled as well. So Daniel and Ezekiel are both exiled during King Jehoiakim's reign. And you also have the first siege of Jerusalem and the end of the first siege of Jerusalem. And you also have the beginning of the second siege of Jerusalem. Then in 597, we have another transition to Jehoiachin. And this king reigned for three months, and the end of his reign was marked by the end of the second siege of Jerusalem. So at the end of Jehoiachin's reign, when that siege was completed, that was it. And we made the transition to King Zedekiah in 597, all the way up until 586. 
This is the final, the third siege of Jerusalem, and this is the time where Jeremiah goes into exile. Do you all see 609 to 597 Jehoiakim? Yeah. That's where we're at in our text right now. Do you see that Daniel is exiled and Ezekiel is exiled during his reign? Do you all see that? That's why we feel completely justified reading how King Jimmy translated it. The man got the burial he deserved, that of an ass. Hey, what's (laughs) verse 20? (laughs) Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Let your voice be heard in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your allies are crushed. All your allies are crushed. Lebanon, Bashan, and Abarim are being linked to an evil and wicked advance. Now, just in case it doesn't immediately come to mind, Lebanon, this is due north of Jerusalem. Bashan is to the northeast. As you're picturing this, what is to the west of them? The sea. So we're going north, northeast, and Abarim is to the south. The idea is that there are allies all around that are not helping them. Cry out for all your allies are crushed. Wow. Now, since you can find Lebanon and Bashan on a map easily, we want to center in on Abarim. I'm going to show you a clipping from the pulpit commentary we're looking at today. Lebanon was in the north, Bashan in the northeast, Abarim in the southeast. It says as it begins, this completes the circle of mountain stations. Mm. So guys, picture this for just a moment. You're standing in Jerusalem. To your west, to your back, is an uncrossable sea. There's water all behind you. You have an ally to the north, which would be to my left. You have an ally to the east, which would be directly in front of me, and then to the south. So all around yourself, you've hemmed yourself in with your best buddies, those you've made special arrangements for, perhaps even paid favors to, to ensure that you were insulated. And God is saying that they're being crushed. Look, I want to take a look at Ezekiel with you and a few other passages that are contemporaries, that are describing the events here in Jeremiah. So our first one's going to be Ezekiel 16, 35-37. Elder Charlie, if you would get that one for me. Our next one is Ezekiel 23, 22-23. Asad. Our next one is Lamentations 1. Verse 2, which is, of course, Jeremiah speaking, but after these events have taken place. Steve Thomas, you get that one. Elder, when you're ready, if you would go ahead and pick up in Ezekiel 16, 35 through 37.
Thank you, Elder. What Ezekiel is depicting here is the events that Jeremiah is describing. So these allies that are to the north, to the east, to the south, completely insulated them. They've obtained by what God calls adultery, by exchange of idols and practices, areas of compromise that they've made to ensure that they have friendship with the world, and when things go bad, that they're covered. Now, we have more passages to cover, but this is a little bit like making sure that you have the needed friends at work by any means necessary to insulate yourself in case things go bad. You want to make sure that you're in good standing. These are the areas of compromise that you made with your family to make sure that if someone's attacking you at Thanksgiving, you at least still have that ant on your side. See, they're surrounded by nations and they felt insecure because they did not trust the Lord their God enough to stand with them. So they began to make allies that brought them into deeper and deeper promiscuity. Man, that's a descriptor we don't often use about our spiritual life, about our walk with Christ, but perhaps it's one we should think about in this day, in this generation. How firm is our stance? Is it promiscuous or is it faithful and monogamous? Ezekiel 23, 22. Both are acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will stir up your lovers against you. Those you turned away, those you turned away from in disgust. And I will bring them against you from every side. Okay. Church, we don't want to belabor the point because there's going to be several more uh, inferences in Jeremiah about this. But Bible prophecy is a pattern. And in Jeremiah's day, the very nations that they leaned on for security, for peace, for safety, are the nations that turn on them. It happens again in Jesus' day. The priesthood in Jesus' day made compacts with Rome. Herod was raised in Rome. And those nations turned on them. And the Bible says that it will happen in the future. When you see repeating patterns like that in the word, you should be warned at least three times over. God cares about your friendships. Lamentations 1-2 is after these things came to pass in Jeremiah's day. So who has that one? Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. I don't have time to get into the Abrahamic Accords. We're an hour and ten minutes in. But Israel should not be confident in the IDF today. They certainly should not be confident in the treaties they make with Muslim neighbors today. But the Bible says that they will be. It clearly says they will be. And the results are disastrous. When you can see a pattern that extends from Jeremiah's day to Jesus' day and is projected in the future... You should be warned three times over about doing it in your own life. Hey, what is uh, verse 21? I warned you when you felt secure, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth. You have not obeyed me. Man, I warned you when you felt secure. Thank God we have a faithful father who warns us before the event. 
Not just when judgment comes, there is a constant warning, even though it feels like there's security. But they said, I will not listen. They felt three things, essentially. They felt peace. They felt safety. They felt security. But these were all markers of self-reliance. Come on, how easy is it to feel like you're doing pretty good just because there's no judgment on you at the, at the moment? But then whenever you reject what the Lord's saying, you reject the warning, warnings of the Lord, and all of a sudden judgment comes and you're like, how did this happen? Ah, it's because we didn't listen to the warnings when we felt secure. We, we have to open our ears when we feel secure. Now these three aspects, peace, safety, and security, they are all present in the time that the prophets speak of called Jacob's trouble. In the time of Jacob's distress, this is what the prophets are speaking about that will come upon Israel in the end time when Jacob is in her distress and they're feeling peace, safety, and security. But these all things happened in Jeremiah's day. Daniel prophesied after Jeremiah, so he's after Jeremiah chronologically, but Daniel said they will happen again in the future. This is Daniel 8, 24 through 25. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, who's the they there? Israel. Israel. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, not by human power. Now, how does this all happen? Well, deceit begins to creep in first. Deceit begins to make people feel secure, and then while they're secure, boom, they're completely destroyed. Now, look what Jesus prophesied about them after Daniel prophesied. And Jesus is also prophesying about this happening in the future. This is Matthew 24, 36 through 39. I'm going to read it. Nick's going to comment. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. Okay, pay attention to verse 38 here. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. What does that sound like? It sounds like it's a time of perceived peace. Yeah. It sounds like it's a time of safety. It's a time of security. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, being given over to marriage. No big deal. But then the rain started pouring down. And then all of a sudden it was a huge deal. And their deception was discovered. Finish that passage. Verse 39 is, is incredible. And they knew nothing about what would happen wow. until the flood came and took them all away. I wonder if they were just blind to it. Well, we know that Enoch was prophesying about it. We know that Noah was building a giant boat. It's not that there was no testimony. It's that the people had no room in their hearts to receive it. Ooh. That is how it will be. At the coming of the Son of Man. And this is the reason why we read these three passages. Because in these passages you can clearly see that in Jeremiah's present day, like when Jeremiah was living and he was prophesying these three things, these peace, safety, and security aspects, they were in full form. Also in Jesus' day, these three aspects could be seen and the people of Israel. But that's not all. We're pointing forward to a point when the Son of Man comes back 
in the end times, when the Son of Man approaches, Israel will be in this place again, where there is peace, safety, and security. You guys know this. Prophecy is a repeating pattern. And it's our responsibility to learn from the repeating pattern of prophecy. Was the flood in Noah's day a small geographical location? No. No. Then I imagine the return of Jesus and the events that were happening was not a small geographical location in the first century. I just want to say plainly, the preterists are wrong. Hey, what's uh, verse 22? (laughs) The wind will drive all your shepherds away, and your allies will go into exile. Then you you will be ashamed and disgraced because of all your wickedness. Praise the living God that we have a Lord and a King that is good enough to send a hornet into the land. Amen. Amen. And the thing that was lulling them to sleep, making them feel safe and secure when they were not, was these allies. So God sends a wind. I mean, like, a wind. When we think of wind, I think of wind chimes on a southern porch. It's not exactly powerful. It reminds me of old ladies and a breeze and a sunny day. (laughs) You know, I think when God was speaking about sending a wind that would blow away the allies that have been giving them a false sense of security, he meant a little more by it. In fact, the word for wind is ruah. You would do well to think of this as the actual spirit of God being breathed across the earth to wipe away the things that have been holding his people in deceit Mm, and blindness. Through this cleansing process, he will bring them to a place where they can be saved. Ezekiel 34, verse 10, comments on this subject. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. The Spirit of God, the word here is ruah, is being active. It is not just a gentle breeze. It's an actual act of God that is coming upon Israel, where their allies, their false shepherds, all of the things that lulls Christianity and Jews at large asleep right now by us. He's saying his spirit itself will blow it away. Man, there is hope in that. When there is a move of God's will, it can blow away the things that have been blinding you. It can bring to light things that still need to be conquered so that we might enter into the land. Look, as you meditate on these things, we're going to pick up in 23, and Jeremiah is going to continue to describe the situation. You who live in Lebanon, who are nestled in cedar buildings, how you will groan when the pangs come upon you. Pain like that of a woman in labor. Look, it sounds very strange to say you who live in Lebanon while the prophet is clearly addressing a king sitting in Jerusalem. Anybody else find that odd? This is because the king is more allied with Lebanon than the God of Israel. It's also a double reference in that the king's palace is constructed from the very forests of Lebanon. You can find that information in 1 Kings 7. I'm just going to read you verse 2 and 3. He built the palace of the forests of Lebanon. A hundred cubits long. It's actually referred to in the scripture as the palace of the forest of Lebanon. I want you uh, to notice also 
that labor pains come upon them. Labor pains in connection are often used in a metaphor for impending judgment. But anybody that's ever had children in here, a few of you ladies had children, raise your hand. It is terrible pain, but it also produces life. Amen. God judges his nation. He allows them to go through terrible <coughs> travails because he wants to produce life. Just on that note, I want you to hear 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. While people are saying peace and safety, oh destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Whether it's Matthew 24, it's 1 Thessalonians 5, or other chapters in Jeremiah, the end times are often described as labor pains. Something that is terrible that takes away the breath of his people and they have to cry out to help to him for help and it produces life. That's the whole point. Let's pick up in verse 24. We've got about 40 minutes and we have some really good things to get to. As truly as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, Hey, we are now addressing the third king in the line, Jehoiachin. I want to show you the slide for a reminder. So we started with Jehoahaz, Shalom. Then we went to Jehoiakim. Now we're talking about Jehoiachin. Do you see how in Jeremiah he's commenting or prophesying to them in that order as they appear in the lineage in Chronicles 36? Now, what he says about Jehoiachin has been distressing. It's been very distressing for, for a lot of people, scholars, all kinds of uh, people that are mockers. It's been distressing to read this about the signet ring and what God is saying to Jehoiachin. A signet, a signet ring in scripture always refers to the kingly authority that the Davidic kings have. And God is saying, if you were a signet ring on my finger, I am going to pull you off of my hand. That's pretty distressing, right? Because Jehoiachin is the king of Judah. Why would God do that if he promised to Judah that they would always have a king on the throne of David? But I want you to see something that is later prophesied in Haggai 2.23. Y'all want to see that? Yeah. Yes. Haggai 2.23 says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty. Now Haggai comes a long time after Jeremiah. He is coming at a time when the exiles have returned. He says, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, I noticed we didn't get a lot of wows and ohs when we read that, but you know who Zerubbabel is? Yeah. He's the grandson of Jehoiachin. You see, God pronounced to Jehoiachin, I'm going to take you, the Davidic king, off my finger like a signet ring. But then he prophesies to the grandson, I'm going to put you back on. Now, however you think of the curse of Jehoiachin, if you think about it at all, Haggai clearly says Zerubbabel will be his signet ring. Now, notice that Matthew, in his genealogy, mentions Zerubbabel in the genealogy of Jesus. This is Matthew 1, 12. 
Matthew 1.12 says, After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So this is where we, we got the biblical precedent to show you that Zerubbabel was indeed the grandchild of Jehoiachin, which is an incre incredible revelation. Yeah. You can't go in tonight to all of the ways that all kinds of different religious people try to twist this and disprove Jesus as the Messiah. It's a genealogical debate, and we can't get into it tonight, but we did want to highlight Haggai 2, as well as the passage that I just read, to make sure that you understand that even though that signet ring was pulled off, the Lord said, hey, grandson, hey, I'm going to put that signet ring back on your finger. I'm going to redeem what your grandpa did, and I'm going to continue through you what the work that I wanted to accomplish through Come on. you. Man, that's, that's amazing promise. Verse 25 and 26 is where we're going to continue. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and there you both will die. You and your mama. God is saying to Jehoiachin, I'm going to hurl you out with the wicked fear will come upon you and your mother is going to experience it as well. I'm kicking you both out of my land. It would be a great Mother's Day message. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> Jeremiah 29.2 speaks of these two. Wow. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So what is being spoken here will take place. Here it says Jehoiachin and his mother. Chapter 29 lets us know that she had been exalted mm. to the place of wow. queen, queen mama. mother. Wow. Don't want to go against mama now, do you? The queen mother. 2 Kings 24, 8 through 9 names her. And then we're going to throw that same slide back on the screen. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Man, this is a common theme. Goodness. His mother's name was Nehushta. Wow. Now, I don't have time to go into exactly what her name means, but I would suggest doing a little etymological research would let you know that it has to do with sorcery, has to do with snakes, has to do with a curse. Man, I've met so many women that were like that, even if they didn't bear the same name. Wow. <laughs> Queen Mother. But God whirled Jehoiachin and her out. God is purging his family line here to make way for real restoration. Let's get 27 and 28. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiachin, a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Hey, would you like to answer that question? <laughs> It's a rhetorical question. The answer should be obvious. What's the answer to it? Yes. yes. Keep going. Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? Well, the chapters of Jeremiah are not always chronological. They are thematically associated. Do you remember that in chapter 18, we went down to a potter's house and some yeah. vessels were marred, but the Master Potter could reform them? Yeah. yeah, that's the chapter everybody loves. Whole ministries are, are named after it. Yeah. They forget 
that chapter 19 and verse 10 has these words. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation, this city, just as the potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. The message is Jeremiah 18 means that God can reform the nation in a new generation. But in Jeremiah 19, this king, he is beyond repair. He is, according to verse 28 of our chapter tonight, Jehoiachin, a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants. Now, you could just learn a historical lesson from that and move on about your day, or you can realize that you can get to a place of disobedience that you're broken beyond repair, mm. where your calling is no longer recoverable, mm. where the best that can happen is you just be an example that is a cautionary tale. We don't want that for anybody. No. But don't fool yourself for a moment. The Bible never gives you any indication, not even close, that that cannot happen. Right. It would take the Baptist church giving us that kind of affirmation. <laughs> yeah. But the Bible does not do it. Let's pick up in verse 29 because it really is beautiful and we've got about 30 minutes left. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Well, he, he, yeah, is he stuttering? <laughs> and does the land have ears? How is the land going to hear the word of the Lord? Could it be that the land is also party to a covenant that was made oh, yeah. with the man and the plan? Yeah. Could it be that the land is waiting for something because so much bloodshed and sin has been done on this land? Look, three times the land is being called upon to witness the curse of disobedience falling on the people for breaking this three-party covenant. The people are breaking their covenant with God. The people are breaking their covenant with the land as well. The land under Jehoahaz, number one. The land under Jehoiakim, number two. The land under Jehoiachin, oh land, land, land. God's speaking to this and he's speaking to the land almost like the land is e eagerly waiting in eager expectation for the righteous sons of God to be revealed. That's a better interpretation than you guys realize. You won't find it in any, any no. commentary. One of these amazing disciples today in prayer figured that out. Now, what's going to happen here? God's crying out to the land, and he's saying, hear the word of the Lord. What's going to happen in the future is that for all of the bloodshed and Sabbaths that are missed by the land, God is going to give 70 years to that land, and that 70 years is going to be restoration for the sins against the land. You can find that in Jeremiah 25, 12 and Jeremiah 29, 10. But the point is the land itself will get its rest. The land itself will get its fulfillment in the covenant that was promised to Abraham. This land is a party to the covenant. So when you're thinking about the land of Israel, don't just think of a space that God selected for his people out of nowhere. Think of something that God made a covenant with that he would restore the land and glorify the land along with the people and along with that plan in Messiah. So with that in mind, let's go on to verse 30. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as a child, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring Oh, man, the desperation of this verse. The line is done with King Jehoiachin. Or is it? 
Now, it's not because we read Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 through 3 together earlier about how his grandson was getting that signet ring put right back on his finger and how the Lord was going to use that man to redeem the line. I've got another passage for you in case you're still a little skeptical from Psalm 89. I'm going to read a few select verses from this psalm to get you an idea about why we are so passionate about the fact that this line is not dead and gone. Amen. Verse 3 says, You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, because it's the, the Davidic line that is in question yeah. right here. It's the, the Davidic line that we're talking about right here. Verse 4, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Now that, to me, does not sound conditional. Does it sound conditional to you? No. Let's go down to verse 35. Check this out. This is amazing. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord is looking and he's saying, hey, by my holiness, I'm swearing the following promise to the Davidic line. And I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. Did you guys see the sun today? Yes. Yeah. I, it was 91 degrees outside today. It was toasty. I saw the sun. The sun's still outside. It's still in the sky. Therefore, we know that the Lord's promise to David and Come to on. his line, it will endure. Yeah. Look at this. Is the moon out tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Come on, of course it is. It, it will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. You see, the sun and moon are more than just figures in the sky. They're actually faithful witnesses that the Lord points to again and again and say, hey, you can see the sun and the moon in the sky. Therefore, you know without a shadow of a doubt that the Davidic line will continue forever as long as you can see those signs. If you're still troubled, Judah's got something for you. Saints, this concept becomes very simple when you understand the election of Israel. Every descendant of Abraham is called to fulfill his promises. And every descendant has a choice as to whether or not they would like to participate in them. You see the same sifting going on in David's line, but God's word stands forever. As we mentioned earlier, Haggai 2.23 is a testimony to this. But if you're still troubled about the blood curse, or something you heard about it, an answer emerges in the differing genealogies of Jesus Christ, which are both inspired. They're recorded in the Gospels as a testimony for all time. Amen. Now Matthew, a Levite himself, focuses his Gospel on the Messiahship of Jesus and presents him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Thus, Matthew traces the legal line from Abraham, as any Jew would, through David and then through Solomon, the royal succession to Joseph, the legal but not biological father of Jesus. Wow. On the other hand, Luke, as a physician, focuses on the humanity of Jesus and presents him as the son of man. So the doctor focuses on his actual genetic heritage. Yeah. Luke traces the bloodline from Adam, the first man, all the way through to David and his genealogy from Abraham through David, David is identical to Matthew's. But then after David, Luke departs, 
So the difference comes at David. Luke departs from the path taken by Matthew and traces the family tree through another son of David, the second surviving son of Bathsheba. His name is Nathan. Down through Eli, the father of Mary, the biological mother of Jesus. You can find that in Luke 3, 23 through 38. Both Gospels give us a descending testimony. One works through a legal line of succession, and one works through a biological line of succession. But the point from both inspired works is Jesus is the one who is worthy. Come on. If you're in the room tonight, and you have real problems with the genealogies, and real problems with our Haggai passage, we have a third route for you. Because we didn't want to spend all night arguing over these trivial details. Skip ahead to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, and let's see how upset Jeremiah is about this curse that means Messiah can't come. Verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David or unto David or for David a righteous branch, a king who will act or reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. Now, this is not the issue that some people make it out to be. Jeremiah records just a few words after the bloodline curse that Messiah is to be a righteous branch of David. So whether you think it works through Haggai or you really like the genealogical presentation we gave, is beside the point. <laughs> a few verses after the bloodline curse, he assures you that it's still going to happen through David. Yeah. Yeah. He evidently was not trying to sell books on Bible difficulties <laughs> or play stump your pastor night after a, a, a full meal, right? Why don't we go ahead and pick up in chapter 23. We have... Uh, some 22 minutes, and they are going to be packed with good things. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declared the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself... Wait, who? I myself. You paid special attention to that wording. When it says, I myself, who is it talking about? The Lord. Lord. God himself is about to do what he says in this passage. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pastures, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. They will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. So in Jeremiah's mind, there is a curse on the line of David, right? No. <laughs> he begins to prophesy about what he's going to do with Israel through a righteous shepherd. God begins to say, I'm going to do something here, and it begins to connect for the people. Now, a contemporary of Jeremiah is Ezekiel, and you find the same wording in Ezekiel chapter 34, Verse 5 through 9. It says, So they were scattered because there were 
there was no shepherd, almost like what was said in Jesus' time. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Verse 7 says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. The problem in question is God wants his people shepherded, but they're not being shepherded by the shepherds in that day. And so God is very upset. He's putting all the blame on the priests, the leaders, and the so-called shepherds. God has a huge problem with that, and it's a recurring problem in Israel's history, but he's about to fix it himself. Look what Ezekiel 34, verse 11 says. So we're continuing in Ezekiel, who's a contemporary of Jeremiah. And the point of the, the next few passages that we're going to read is that the Lord calls himself the shepherd of Israel. It is Yahweh God speaking through these passages. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Look at verse 12. As a shepherd looks for his, after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look for my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. Wow, that's, that's odd. Nations, countries. I thought we were just dealing with one kingdom here. Obviously, there's going to be another future fulfillment of this. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. Slide your finger down to verse 22. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And verse 28. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Praise God for the correct time of Israel living in God-ordained safety not safety that they have created with their own right arm. Yeah. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Listen to verse 30 and 31. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people. And I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. We're about to jump to John 10. All right, saints, give me your attention, because I promise this will bless you. He said, I myself. He said, my servant David, who I will raise up. Catch John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Come on. This is Jesus Christ standing before Israel saying, I am the good shepherd. Yeah. 
In Ezekiel, the Lord said, I am the shepherd. I wonder if they're one and the same is what he's saying. I am the perfect representation of that shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Man, did Jesus prove that one? The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. There it is. Jesus is commenting on the shepherds that have been previously over Israel, and they have been scattered again and again. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. Whose sheep are they? But God said they were his sheep. Whoever is speaking here is both the righteous branch of David and is associated with God himself. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. Praise God. I must bring them also. They, too, will listen to my voice. Let that be a prophecy to you, LCM. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one who takes it from me but lays it down, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Saints, he's depicting that he has been given the authority from his father. He has been given the right to rule. He is the shepherd, and at will he's the one who can lay it down and pick it up back again because he's the only one who can inherit that throne. Man, it looked many times like the Davidic line was gone, like it had been laid down in the grave, but after three days, something began to stir again. He is the embodiment of David, the perfect, sinless one that is the good shepherd. Who's the creator? God. God. Who's the author of life? Yahweh. Acts 3.15 says, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. I'll let that sit with you for just a minute. Hey, let's go to chapter 23 in verse 5. <laughs> the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. If we had unlimited time tonight, I would talk to you about Netzer and talk to you about Samach. If you read Isaiah 11, if you spend some time in this, Isaiah 11 says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Understand that before Jeremiah's day, it looked like the line of David may one day be cut off. But something would break forth from that stump. A branch would come out. It brings so much clarity to things like Matthew 2.23 that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, that's not that weak little sect of Christians in a uh, break off of the Methodist church. It probably means Netzerim. It probably means he will be called that shoot that comes out of the stump, the redemption of the Davidic line. It probably means when it looked like there was no way, Mm -hmm. he makes that way. We had time, we would tell you all about that. If you'd like to hear some good things about it, it is a teaching of Michael Rood that I think is worthwhile. What we'd like to do with this time, because we've got about 12 minutes, is turn your attention to Psalm 80, 
and verse 13, where Justin will pick up for us. Psalm 80, verse 13. Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. Who is the vine, church? Israel. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. Who's that root? Jesus. Jesus. Israel, Jesus. The son you have raised up for yourself. Interesting. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. But let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. Let your hand rest on that branch. Let your hand rest on that netzer. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. It's almost like they were looking for this Messiah at this time frame. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Church, the truth is, is that that vine has looked like for many times in history that it is cut down, burned with fire. But God is able through a stump to make a branch rise up out of it miraculously. And then that branch begins the healing for the entire nation. How good is our God for making that happen? Especially if the branch can be born of a woman that comes from the line of David, but not share the genetic material of a cursed line. That, that's really special in and of itself. Hey, what's verse 6? In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now there's something very special about the title, the Lord our righteousness. And we have a couple slides to illuminate that to us tonight. The first one talks about some common Hebrew names. Now, if you look at the right side and you look at the English translation. What does every English translation of these names have in common? God. Yes, that's right. So, Eliyahu, he is my God. Chezeki Yahu. The mighty God. Mikael. It's got God in it. Shmuel. God. And Yesha Yahu. It also has God in it. All of these Hebrew names have that aspect of God, but it's only a portion of the divine name of Yahweh. Do you see that up there? Yah, Yah, El, El, Yah. It's only a small portion of God's divine name. Now, this phrase, the Lord our righteousness, now this title is something a little bit different than what you see. Let's get that next slide. He shall be called the Lord our righteousness. We've got a breakdown here. Yahweh. Oh man, I'm not going to do that. One. Thank you, Treaster. <laughs> Look, I wanted to draw your attention to the commentary in the bottom of your screen. It says names that contain the divine element, Yahweh, always use it in abbreviated form, like we saw in the last slide. We had Yah, we had El. It was an abbreviated form. Either at the beginning, represented by names such as Jehoram or Josiah, or at the end, represented by names ending in Ia or Yah. Only when speaking of the Messianic King is the Lord's name written in full 
Are you guys getting this? This is a clear messianic passage that we've stumbled upon. Contrast Yahweh here with Zedekiah. Yahweh is my righteousness. In a unique way, this king bears the divine name, similar to the angel of the Lord in certain key contexts. Let me put it in an easy-to-understand format. Lots of men may serve as a function that reminds you of a characteristic of God. But this passage is speaking about a man's name, a one who would come, that would teach you the fullness of God's name. He would represent all that is God. It's almost like the fullness of the deity would dwell in the man in bodily form. Saints, as we pick up in seven, just to key in on this, the name is Yahweh, righteousness. It's not Lord in general. His name will be God, righteousness. In unequivocal blanket terms, Jeremiah is calling the son of David God. That's not something that many of you are wrestling with, but it's something that we must hold on to. This is the hope of Israel. Let's get seven through eight, brother. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. To understand what's happening here, it's very easy to look and go, okay, they go into Babylon, they come out of Babylon, historic fulfillment. The problem with that is that Babylon is a singular country. It is not countries, plural. And what Jeremiah is actually talking about is coming out of all of the countries of the north. What this tells us is that there is a repeating historic pattern where Israel is banished and is brought back, but there is an ultimate fulfillment when they are brought back from every country and live in their own land. I'm very fond of the repatriation of Israel in 1948, Mm -hmm. but it does not fulfill this prophecy. This prophecy points to something that is greater than anything that we've seen. It's almost like the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Like if the first exodus was good, a final exodus will be the best. We've been talking all night about Lebanon and Gilead. We've been talking all night about those things hinting at other truths. And Brother Nick stumbled onto Micah 7. I mean, it's first time any of us have ever read it. And, uh, and I just, I'd like him to walk us through Micah 7 in our final five minutes. Everybody turn your Bibles to Micah 7, verse 14. We're going to join some dots here as we close. Say shepherd when you get there. Shepherd. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Before we go on, you should join the dot of shepherd that we were talking about tonight. The dot of the Lord our righteousness. 
the dot of Jesus, the Messiah, the good shepherd, equating himself as the good shepherd that Jeremiah was prophesying about hundreds of years earlier and saying Yahweh in his stead. Jesus equated himself as the good shepherd of Jeremiah, and the Lord equated himself as the good shepherd of Jeremiah, one and the same. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. Wow. As in days long ago. Wow. Now, isn't that interesting? We not just have Bashan there, we don't just have Gilead there, but we have a link between Bashan and Gilead. And not just that, we have Bashan and Gilead being completely decimated, conquered, leveled by the Lord, and that land restored to the people of Israel for their benefit, for their enjoyment, a restoration for God's people. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Hey, this is pointing to the end is so much better than the beginning of a matter. Hey, that part two is going to be so much better than part one. What is coming is going to dwarf what the Lord showed that first exodus out of Egypt. It is going to be absolutely terrifying, but at the end of days, it is going to be the most beautiful thing that the world and the nations have ever seen. Come on. Let's finish this passage together. Nations will will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. That's because all of them will be submitted to the Davidic king and his people Israel. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. It's almost as if that snake at the beginning of the story has reached his final fulfillment. You become an awful lot like what you worship. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. We have reached the end of our study tonight and it's very rare that you ever see a good movie and the second one's better than the first. But in the biblical story, Amen. I promise the second is better than the first. I want to close just by putting Ecclesiastes 7, 8 on the screen and reiterating a theme that we're trying to help you with through a remember series, through a reflection series. God's people go through some tough times. They're caused by our own disobedience. But the transformation in your future is greater than any transformation you've had in your past. Your walk is not declining. Your walk should be increasing. God's movement in your life did not peak on the day of your birth. It should be growing since the day of your birth. Ecclesiastes 7-8 says very plainly, the end of a matter 
is better than its beginning. You should never view the walk of your salvation as having peaked on day one. Day one was not the finish line. It was the starting line. The story of Israel in the Bible is the story of God's son. His son that he takes by the hand and he walks through difficulties through generations, but he matures him into a prince with God that is like God. Amen. That is our destiny. Yeah. That is our story. You have been crying out to God for weeks for transformation. And in reading chapters like Jeremiah 22, you might need to cry out more for that transformation. But you can also know for certain that little by little, yes. step by step, yes. he will hold your hand and transform yes. you. Amen. Amen. Please stand to your feet. we're going to pray and we're going to rejoice while we pray. Yeah. We're no longer going to look at things like trials in our lives as obstacles. We're going to look at them as opportunities to know him in a greater measure. We're going to look at them as opportunities to be transformed in a greater measure. And we're going to realize that the ultimate goal of all of this is that we will be transformed from mortality into immortality. And that'll be the greatest event that anybody's ever seen. So mighty God, we thank